Welcome to another episode of the Just Some Christian Guy podcast, your home for maintaining a Christian perspective in an increasingly secular world. Jeffrey Epstein is the topic of today and why the Epstein case should matter to you and to us as Christians. I do want to admit that when I recorded this, I recorded it while I was driving. Don't worry, it was hands-free. But because of that, the audio quality is not of the highest degree. Uh, You can hear some background noise. I do apologize for that. Uh, But hopefully, uh, it will not deter you from being able to hear my thoughts, to hear the points that I have to make on why Christians should care about the Epstein case, and how we as Christians can maintain a biblical perspective when cases that deal with political corruption and with grotesque crimes against humanity occur. With that said, I hope you guys enjoy these thoughts. Hope you have a great day. God bless you. Jeffrey Epstein, Christianity, and criminal justice reform. Big topic today. I know this is the one that everybody's been looking forward to because Jeffrey Epstein is all that is on the news feeds, on the social media. That is the topic that everyone wants to discuss. That is the topic that has taken over all of meme culture. Um, If you haven't seen at least one meme about Jeffrey Epstein's quote-unquote suicide, then you've probably been living under a rock. Um, And so, want to address why Jeffrey Epstein is a significant case, why it's important to Christians, and lastly, uh, how to address it from a criminal justice and uh, prison standpoint. So first, Jeffrey Epstein. For those of you who don't know, uh, he was a very sick and deranged individual. Um, I can't tell you what his uh, personal net worth was, but he was a big-time millionaire. And he had a private jet, private islands, private everything, uh, including a private sex trade. And he was trafficking women and children uh, for sexual exploitation purposes. And his private plane was one of the featured places for foreplay and other nefarious activity uh, of abusing these women and children. And I believe this was to include children as young as 12. Uh, I, the, the number 15 stands out. I, I think some of the reports said 15, but for some reason I was really thinking, I, I read one report that said uh, as, as girls as young as 12 uh, were being uh, trafficked and featured in his, uh, his paradise plane or, or whatever disgusting uh, euphemism. Um, he called it. Uh, same with his private island that served a similar function. It was a private island uh, where just all types of just absolute depravity and just atrocious things were committed against these women and children. Um, he was a mega rich uh, businessman, and the reason this case is so significant is, is well, one, because of the lives of the victims, because their lives are significant. And it's important to make sure that those victims see justice and that they are properly taken care of. Uh, But secondly, the reason that this case has gotten so much, not enough, attention in the media 
is that he kept a ledger of individuals who traveled via his private plane and attended his private island uh, for whatever type of activities may or may not have been happening where there were also trafficked girls uh, located. And this ledger contains names of some very high-profile people within our country. Uh, first and foremost, former President Bill Clinton was on this plane on at least, I believe it was three occasions. I, th I think you have to double check some of these some of these exact facts, but I think it was three occasions. Um, and then there were a number of other you know high-profile politicians um, and and businessmen alike that uh, were partaking in Epstein's offered um, extracurriculars. And so the fact that all of these names were. Uh, featured on this list and as, as potentially participating in these illegal activities um, could, I don't want to get into levels of hyperbole or conspiracy theory, but honestly, um, if the justice is found for all those who are guilty, and if those who are guilty are those who had close relations with Epstein, then it could completely wreak havoc upon the most power, some of the most powerful individuals in this country. Uh, it could turn over a whole new level of systemic corruption um, in political offices as high as the presidency. And uh, speaking of, there was one report that suggested uh, President Trump may have had some type of relationship with Epstein, though the relationship's pretty unclear. I think Trump came out, of course, denied it, but everybody's denying their relations with Epstein. Uh, but, but Trump's name never came up as being one of the individuals who, who traveled via Epstein's uh, private, private plane and, and island. Um, so anyway, you can imagine, you can just imagine how if all of these people in these names were to be found guilty, uh, what that would do um, as far as uh, correcting corruption within the government. Now, the problem is because these people are some of the most powerful, um, they don't want Epstein to, uh, of course, um, take the stand, uh, to be a witness, to provide any testimony. Uh, so as soon as Epstein was arrested, I mean, I mean the minute he was arrested, you started seeing a bunch of uh, jokes and sarcastic remarks being made, uh, both in the media and on social media, um, about, oh, Epstein, uh, tragic news to hear about Epstein killing himself tomorrow. I, I, one, I remember one picture, one meme, was a picture of, of Bill Clinton making this quote and saying, oh, I'm so sorry to hear the of the suicide of, of uh, Jeffrey Epstein tomorrow. And yes, it was done as a joke, but then lo and behold, what happens? Well, he had a suicide attempt. And <laughs> so his first suicide attempt was uh, by cutting. And he was already under very tight surveillance in the holding facility where he was located. And so the question was always, how in the world did he get away with attempting to commit suicide by cutting himself? Where did he get an instrument to cut himself? And how did no one see this happening? So after that first failed suicide attempt, which everyone thought was a murder attempt, 
he gets put on an even higher level of watch, a higher level of security, and then what happens? Oh, he committed suicide by hanging. Even though he was supposed to be under 24-7 video surveillance, he had two guards posted, and he was supposed to be in an environment in which suicide was an impossible feat. And somehow, suspiciously, the video cameras weren't working and the guards both happened to just conveniently fall asleep as soon as uh, he uh, uh, strangled himself. Okay, and so now yesterday, uh, the autopsy reports come back and the lead medical doctor says, no, the, the results of the autopsy, the exam, the physical evidence indicates that it most likely was uh, homicide and not suicide. This shocks absolutely no one because of Epstein's connections. So now the question just comes to how deep does the corruption go? How systemic is this problem? Is it the guards? Is it the prison management? Is it the uh, attorneys? Is it the judge? Um, so how widespread does it go? How many pockets have been lined with dirty money in order to uh, have Epstein be seasoned assisted permanently? So it's a big deal. This is a huge case because of its political implications. Um, and I, I truly pray that, uh, that justice is sought out diligently and fervently by people with righteous motives who are willing to put their own lives at risk in order to identify all the individuals who are involved in this level of corruption and who participated in the vile actions of harming those women and children. And I hope all of them face justice. I hope all of them face very severe punishment for their association and for their relations and for their assistance and all of these activities. So what does this mean for Christianity? Why does it matter to Christians? One of my kind of like taglines for this page, this podcast, these videos are uh, it's to provide a Christian perspective in an increasingly secular world. So how does this case of Jeffrey Epstein um, affect Christianity? How does Christianity affect it? How are we as Christians to view this case and why is it significant and important to us? Okay, so I'm going to give you three reasons. First reason is because of the victims. Christians, we got a responsibility. We have a higher obligation to be loving stewards of goodwill and good works of righteousness to all people, but especially to those who are in the innocent. We are to be protectors and caretakers and to teach, to encourage, to do the best that we can to preserve and spread innocence and truth. Innocence to mean, could you imagine if your daughter was kidnapped and trafficked and raped tragically by politicians that you see on the news every single day who are being freely elected to office, but you know that your daughter was raped by that individual? We have a duty to protect that daughter because of the innocence there, 
We have a duty to protect the, the morality of this country. We have a duty to protect and preserve truth to make sure that the truth comes to light in all situations. This is a higher obligation that Christians have that the rest of the world, frankly, doesn't. Why? Because if God doesn't exist, truth doesn't matter, morality doesn't matter, you can throw it all out because it's all garbage. Because if there is no singular, ultimate, powerful, good, moral law giver, there is no ultimate, meaningful, long-lasting, steadfast reason for us to love and support and to be good to one another. None whatsoever. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. So I'm going to go do what's best for me because Jeffrey Epstein says, you know what? I like to rape little girls. That's what works for me. That's what's good to me. Look, I'm rich. I'm successful. It's absolutely working for me. I'm going to do what makes me happy. Forget you guys. I'm doing what's best for me. False. Patently, inherently, historically false. No. Christians, we know that the Word of God is true. We know that God exists. And if we are going to call ourselves Christians, we have a duty to uphold and preserve truth and morality and innocence. So are we going to look out for the good of the innocent that are in society and to protect them to the best of our ability? Are we willing to step up and do whatever it takes to protect our kids, our women, our children, shoot, each other as brothers, as men? Are we willing to protect each other from the dangers and harms of this world? Because if we don't feel that responsibility to take care of one another, why should anyone else on this planet feel a responsibility to, to be their brother's keeper, all right? So we have a duty to the victims, to those that are innocent, to those that have had so much taken away from their lives, to make sure that truth is found out and that justice is done. Secondly, this case matters because as Christians, we have an obligation to do our best to make sure that our government remains corruption-free and works diligently to pursue and enact and enforce justice and the rule of law. Now there is a bit, this can be a dividing issue amongst Christians because there is admittedly a bit of a gray area in how Christians are to be um, involved in things like uh, politics and, and how Christians are to be involved in, in government and, and what the Christian role is. It's a very deep issue that's been debated for as long as Christianity has been around. But let me propose two passages to you. Um, as you can see, I'm driving. I'm not going to be able to read and quote them for you. Let me paraphrase these for you, and please check this out for yourself. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. I believe it really extends out through most of the chapter 13, but 1 through 4 is where the real heart of it is. Um, and then, so Romans 13, 1 through 4. Additionally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Uh, Give me, give me some wiggle room. Maybe, maybe a verse or two on either side. Give me a little wiggle room. First Peter chapter two, roughly thirteen to twenty-two. Okay. What these two passages deal with 
is the Christian role in respect to how we are to interact with the government and on the flip side, how the government is supposed to act towards its people. There is a God-appointed purpose and authority that is bestowed upon the government of the land that is not given to the people individually. What is this purpose? One, Christians, we are to be obedient to the governing authorities. We are to obey the laws of the land so far as they do not contradict the laws of God. If it becomes a law that I am not allowed to preach the gospel, that is a law that I'm going to break. However, in all things that do not contradict God's law, I am to be obedient to man's law. The reason stated for this, it's implied in Romans, it's stated fairly clearly in 1 Peter chapter 2, the reason for this obedience is to be found in good favor with all men, not giving man an excuse to tarnish the image of Christianity and not giving man a reason to persecute Christians because of our disobedience to man's law. We're to act in good favor with all men to increase our ability to evangelize and to increase our ability to show love for one another. So that's one. So two, the second purpose that is related in these passages is that the government is expected to uphold justice and act as the sort of vengeance for God. The government has the duty and the charge from God to pursue righteous justice and judgment on earth. There will be a final judgment for all the guilty who die in a state of depravity because they have not obeyed their Savior. That is the ultimate, final, and perfectly righteous because it is never and will never be wrong judgment from God on all of our souls. But here on earth, in this physical state, here and now, to the absolute best of their ability, the government is charged with pursuing and dealing out righteous justice, which means convicting the wicked and making sure they receive due punishment for their crimes. Now, what is this due punishment? The Bible doesn't say. It leaves it pretty open. So, you know, I'm not even going to go into terms of what, you know, our Eighth Amendment would cover. I'm not going to go into capital punishment. Uh, that's, that's too much. That's too much for this, for this lesson. That's too much. The point is, it is up to the government to make sure that the evildoers are punished. But additionally, and this one I believe is in Second, or excuse me, First Peter chapter 2, not only is the government expected to uh, deal out punishment to the evil, the government has an expectation that they will praise those who do good. So there is this call for the government to identify the members in society who are living good lives, who are being obedient to the laws, and who are upholding the integrity of society and to praise those people for the good that they are doing. So, these two things combined. Christians are supposed to be obedient to the government, but the government is supposed to deal out justice in a fair and righteous manner. These two things combined imply that we as Christians, so much as we have authority from our government, 
we are to live in such a way that we are to ensure that our politicians, that our law enforcement and police, that our judicial system, our judges, our attorneys, that our prison system, all those dealing with the punitive side of our justice system, we as Christians are to do our very best to ensure that these men and women who occupy those roles in society will uphold their duty to the standard of our laws, our constitution, and will also do so with the earnest prayer that these people holding these offices will not only hold themselves accountable to enacting justice by our laws, but will live in a way that would be coinciding with God's true singular morality and moral laws. That is our hope and prayer. So, we as Christians have this obligation to do our best to make sure that our justice system is going to deal out punishment justly and to honor those who are living righteously. The reason for this, as I said, is to protect innocence, to teach and spread and encourage morality, to encourage the sanctity and the unity of society, and to ensure that truth is upheld. Cannot reinforce those factors enough. And let me let me show you by example in history what this can look like and when it can be taken too far. Let's look at the first few centuries of Christianity. We have uh, Rome, the Roman Empire, okay? And so Christianity is seen as a thorn in the side of the Roman Empire for the first roughly 300 years of Christianity, where Christianity is fairly openly and unashamedly persecuted beyond what really we in the United States can comprehend. If you were to travel over to the Middle East, to Africa, to uh, parts of Asia, um, Christians there are going to have a little bit better understanding of the type of persecution that Christians under the Roman Empire during the uh, first through third centuries felt with uh, the open open torture and death uh, and, and, and persecution in terms of not just physical ailments, but in being uh, considered uh, outsiders in society. So we have Christians who are extremely in a bad place in the world. And those Christians are still expected to obey the laws of the land. And so what happens after approximately 300 years of Christians doing their best to live righteously, to live in a way that shows love and goodwill towards their neighbors? Well, Constantine comes along. And he's like, you know what? I'm paraphrasing big time here. Constantine comes along. He's like, wow, these Christians are they're pretty serious about this stuff. Like, there's some good reason to believe that this is true, that Christ really did die and resurrect, that he was the Savior for our sins, and that the gospel message told in the morality that's handed out in the Bible, it's all true, and it is to the benefit of society. I see the way that these Christians are living obediently, and despite all of the persecution, they're not trying to stir up revolts and uprisings and spread rebellion. They're just, they're just hardworking people that are trying to live the best lives they can for their gospel call. And, and they're not really causing any problems. You know what? Christianity, boom. That's the religion of the empire now. And that is how a president or an emperor can be converted through our actions. Now, this is also seen in Russia. Um, in the 
I believe it was the 9th century. Most people don't know this fun fact. The Cyrillic language, the Russian alphabet, was invented by Christian missionaries who went out to... Uh, uh, blanking. Whatever Russia was called before was Russia. Uh, but the Slavic territories, okay? Um, and goes to these Slavic people who don't have a written language. It's 800 and some A.D., and the Christian missionaries say, oh, you guys don't have a written language. This is this is going to make it a little bit more challenging for us to show you um, the truth of the gospel because um, the word of God is, is, is word. It's written word. It's not just word of mouth. It, it's been passed down through time, preserved and kept in a written format. So you had these missionaries that learned the Slavic language, became fluent enough that they could give it a written language and they developed an alphabet for the Slavic people for the sole purpose of converting them to Christ. Wow, have you done that for Christ yet? Have you learned a foreign language for the sole purpose of converting people? I haven't. Um, so then, so you have these Slavic converts to Christianity. Now that they have, they have the Bible in their own language, they understand it. You have these pocket converts. So then fast forward the next few hundred years, you get into the medieval times, and you have, over this time, you have rising and falling in different, um, you know, empires, kings. I, I'm failing with the terminology of what exactly they called their, their leadership over the lands. But the point is, as, as the Slavic nations came together and rose up and came to power, um, the Christians were left alone. Uh, despite all of the different wars and conflicts that were going on for hundreds of years in this area, um, because the Christians were just living humble, obedient lives, obedient to God's law and to man's law, the, the different changing governments over the time, they always were like, you know what, we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna pick fights with the Christians because they're not doing anything to hurt us. So you know what, we're gonna we're gonna not tax them. Uh, we're not gonna persecute them. We're not gonna do anything to cripple them because they're just they're model citizens. That's what we want all people to live like. And because of that, the Christians that were living in this area were able to come to power through their material gain because they weren't being taxed, they weren't being persecuted, they were able to work more freely. And so that's how the uh, not only the Catholic Church, but then once it branched from Roman Catholicism to Orthodox, that's how the Orthodox Church uh, became so powerful uh, in East Northeast Asia and, and throughout Russia. And even today, the Orthodox Church has a lot of power and influence. Um, and, and the reason was because of the, the example set by the Christian living. Now, I'm not advocating for a theocracy here. There's only one theocracy. That's going to be upon the final judgment day when God is reigning supreme again and this whole uh, free free will on earth and, and, and everything, um, it's, it's going to come to a close. We're going to have a theocracy in the end. We don't have a theocracy today. I would not advocate for a theocracy because it's kind of like communism. You know, it looks good on paper. Like, oh man, this looks good on paper because under communism, everybody's united under one system. We have one uniform standard that everybody's going to live by so that everybody can work more efficiently. I mean, that's how you get a football team together. You get everybody operating on the same page, working for a common cause. Well, that's the team that's going to be victorious because they're working better. They're working more diligently and everyone is contributing their fair part to the success of all. Man, communism sounds great. Well, but the problem is never, never in the history of man has communism ever been successful because of the failures of man. See, we live in this fallen state today where, yeah, men are going to mess up. I say men to mean humankind. I don't, I don't mean just males, although arguably males probably mess up more than women. I mean people in general. And so nobody's going to be able to live perfect lives perfectly for their entire life. And the only way to get everybody on board with a quote-unquote theocracy would be is if every single person 
were to be obediently converted to Christ and then live perfectly after that. It, it, it's not it's not tenable. It, it, it's the ideal. It's not tenable. So I think a government today should not be a theocracy. I think it should be governed with the principles found in the Bible, but not have the Bible itself forced upon the people. God doesn't even force himself upon us. That's why we have the free will to deny him or choose him. So I don't think a government should overreach what God is not going to touch. And I don't think the government should force people. That's how you have that's how you have the Inquisition happen. That's not a good thing. So there should there shouldn't be a theocracy. I think the government should be guided by moral principles, not a bio theocracy. This has been a huge tangent. I, wow, going a little going a little long here. That was a big tangent. But the point is, it is by Christians living obedient lives that look out for the good of their fellow man and look out for the good of our political leaders that our political leaders could be converted to the Christian message. That's a good goal to have. Which brings me to point three. So point one, the Jeffrey Epstein case matters to Christians because of the victims. Point two was that the Jeffrey Epstein case matters to Christians because of the Christian duty to do our best to make sure our justice system is acting corruption-free and in a manner that pursues truth and justice. Point three, why the Jeffrey Epstein case matters to Christianity is because we have a duty to evangelize. And... The best way for us to evangelize is not to remain naive and ignorant to all of the evils that are going on in the world. We're not going to be able to properly spread God's message to people who are abused and to those that are hurt if we don't understand where they are coming from, if we don't understand what they have been through. Because if you go to somebody who has suffered unimaginable tragedy and abuse to their emotional and physical and spiritual well-being in the terms of being trafficked and raped by disgusting individuals, and you say that, well, you know what? God is all good. God is good all the time. You know what they're going to say? God wasn't good when I was hurting. Where was he then? If you don't know what's going on in people's lives, you're not going to be able to preach a message that is going to truly apply to them in a way that they can understand the gospel truths. You take somebody who's feeling that type of pain, you're going to need to preach the gospel truth to them with a completely different frame of mind and a completely different heart. You don't change the truth. There's only one truth. You change the approach. So the approach is, is no longer that, oh, God is in control all the time. Thanks, Calvinism. No. God loves mankind, and he loves you. And because of God, your life is of infinite worth and value. And because of God, the people that hurt you are wrong. They are dead wrong dead in their sins, going to burn in hell for what they have done if they do not repent and make things right. Because here's the truth. The people that do these atrocious things in our world, if there's no God, if there's no ultimate authority, there's no final justice for Jeffrey Epstein. 
There's no final justice for all of his associates and for all those who participate in such activities. There is no closure. There is no sense of true justice because what they did wasn't really wrong. And after they died and their victims died, there is no further impact on the world or on humanity for those deeds. But because God is real and God is loving, that soul that was hurt, that victim, that innocent person, they can find absolutely love and embrace and encouragement through the Christian community that they could have never even fathomed existed because of the love and support that Christ showed to us as sinners, we can show that to all victims and to all those that are innocent because we do love them, because they were created in the image of God, because they are beautiful, because they are special, they are unique, because their life has value and it has purpose. Folks, there is, there is no message quite so loving and as powerful as that. And that's why it's absolutely important for us to be able to evangelize and spread the truth. So those are the three reasons that Christianity truly matters, um, or why the Jeffrey Epstein case truly matters uh, for Christianity. Because we have a duty to protect and preserve innocence. Because we have a duty to ensure that justice is done through the proper channels. And because we have a duty to properly, lovingly evangelize and care for those that are hurting. So, the, the final section that I want to bring up is the criminal justice system. Yes, it is flawed. Not many people at this point in my life know this about me because it was, it was from years ago. I actually have a master's degree in criminal justice, which means I am much more qualified than the vast majority of Americans to say this. I don't know the right answer to prison reform and the justice system. It is an overly complex beast because of how large our population is, because of the melting pot that is our society, because of the different values that are found across all of our nation, because of the ever-changing views on things such as addiction, drug abuse, such as alcoholism, uh, such various crimes uh, of theft, or even of uh, abuse that causes physical harm. There's always these shifting values on, on which crimes are worse than others and the culprits of such crimes. There's always shifting values in how you handle these culprits um, and, and, and looking, at, looking at their singular action that was illegal and that caused harm versus looking at their life that led up to that point because there's a gross difference between somebody who is a, a, a uh, sociopath who is, who is truly mentally deranged, that is just looking to cause and inflict harm upon many in a very selfless, um, lack of empathetic manner, and a 18-year-old who is living on the streets because he came from an abusive home in which his parents were, you know, on drugs. His, his dad was abusive. Um, he uh, wasn't properly taken care of. He's never seen love in his life. He had to drop out of school. And then this person goes and, and has to steal. 
um, and maybe in the process of stealing hurt someone. So there is no black and white punitive system to take care of all these issues. And then when you mix in um, the the amount of time it takes to ensure that justice is done uh, fairly so that the an innocent person isn't wrongfully convicted because that does happen on occasion um, to uh, in the prisons uh, what should be the, the how the, the prisons are set up um, it, it's it's overwhelmingly complex so the, so the point that I, I, I bring up with this is that if you think you have the answer odds are good it's probably not going to work that doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue solutions I don't don't get me wrong I'm not trying to stymie the pursuit of, of solutions and of, of making things better. I'm just, I, I want people to be aware and to be cognitive that just because they, um, you know, had an extra cup of coffee today and they have this one brilliant idea that they think is going to be a blanket cure-all, it just, it's probably not going to work that way. If you feel strongly about it, okay, then, then go through the proper channels and pursue it if you think it's going to work. So here's my personal take on it. On, on the prison system, on the justice system overall. Um, I think that the uh, it's, it's been well known for decades now that the prison system is failing. It's not, it's not working. The recidivism rates are not going down. People are not getting the proper care that they need. And honestly, they're not even feeling the punishment that they should feel. So the prison system, the, the idea of prison really took hold and really spread um, because the concept of being separated from society, that used to be a punishment because you go from a, a much more corporal type of justice system in which if you were caught stealing, you had your hand chopped off. You know, if you were uh, an adulterer, you know, you had, you know, the A type thing. You're putting the stocks, the locks and stocks. Um, you go from getting the guillotine uh, and, and public shaming. Um, and you have all of these corporal type of punishments and people said, you know what, that's, that's not fair. Um, that is, uh, too extreme. That is cruel and unusual. We need to find a way to punish individuals without degrading them. And in a way that doesn't encourage the furtherance of additional violence within society. Okay. So, Oh, shoot, I forgot a major point I meant to make earlier. This is important. Hear me out. I'm, I'm going to digress just a little bit. Um, another reason for the government, this is going back to the initial point too, the, another reason for the government, uh, the essentiality for the government to pursue justice is so that it gets rid of the need for personal vengeance because as Christians, we're not to seek personal vengeance. That, that's wrong. That's, that's, that's straight up considered uh, wrong. You would be in wrong standing with God. You would be going against God if you wanted to pursue personal vengeance, which is why the government has this duty to exact justice on the guilty parties. That way, the victims and the, and the victims' families don't feel the burden or don't feel the responsibility to pursue that vengeance for themselves. Okay, coming back forward, prison. So you go from corporal punishment and people say, okay, we need to find a way um, to, to punish people uh, that can handle these in mass punishments um, and in a way that is not so publicly uh, violent. So what's a good punishment? We're going we're gonna to separate people uh, from society because it's punishment to not be able to hold your kids. 
It's punishment to not be with your, your wife or your, your spouse, okay? It's punishment to not be a contributing member of society. It's punishment that you can't be a working, contributing member of society and you are separated from everything that you know. And once we separate you from all of this, we're going to put you in an environment that allows you time to think about your actions and to think about why what you did was wrong. And now, the prison reform over the past hundred years, it has changed drastically over the types of programs that are offered within prisons. Everything from conducting corporal punishment within prisons to, uh, in more modern times, uh, to providing counseling and education and healthcare in prisons in order to try to correct the person's view on, on the, of themselves, of their friends and family, of their victims, uh, and of society in general. So the idea is to try to counsel them into being a better person. So... Where does that leave us today in these overcrowded prisons that still see high recidivism rates? Okay, well, here's my personal opinion. I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to provide any type of stats or research to back this up. This is just Tyler Hoggins speaking freely uh, from the heart, from the mind, what I've thought about. I think that for the guilty party, there should be swift and severe punishment. And what I mean by that is find a way to try to speed up the whole trial process. I understand the need to make sure that the um, accused party is, is not innocent, that you're not punishing an innocent person. And so I understand that sometimes these trials can be drawn out because you don't want to sentence the, the guilty party, or you don't want to sentence an innocent, an innocent person. Find a way, and I think this has to be done at the local level with a more hyper-vigilant community that is on the watch for crime, that is on the watch for culprits that can serve as legitimate witnesses that can provide testimony and additional proof. That way these processes can be sped up. But this takes, this takes an entirely uh, shift in society and in culture um, that the government... The government's not our babysitters. We need to have a vigilance to take care of one another. That's that's not the that's not the government's job. The, the government Yes, punish punish the bad guys, right? But this level of hypervigilance to make sure that the guilty party is properly found out and that truth comes to light needs to to be properly executed at the local level with all individuals, all citizens, all, all members in a community uh, working together for the benefit of one another and in a way that loves and supports one another. And then when somebody gets out of line and, and does something wrong, that justice is kept at the most local level possible. That's where it needs to be confined to. Um, because it is at that level that the trials can be expedited and, and can be handled more efficiently because you're going to have, again, you, you have a more vigilant society that's, that knows uh, what to look for, how to look for, that's going to be willing to do some of this investigation to provide testimony. You're going to be able to get convictions faster. So you convict the guilty. Punishment needs to be severe. Take that for however you want. If we're going to keep this at the most local level as possible, then let's respect the local level and what they define as severe. Um, my favorite is manual labor environments. Um, put the prisoners in a situation, put the guilty in a situation where they're doing hard manual labor. 
And then when the Labor Day is done, provide them with the moral and social counseling that they need in order to internalize the fact that they did something wrong. So you're going to have the physical punishment of, oh, I don't want to do bad because I don't want to have to go through this labor camp again. But then you're going to have the, the, the mental, emotional, the spiritual, the very personal level conversion of, well, I don't want to do wrong because I recognize that other people are valuable and I want them to treat me fairly too. And I want to treat them fairly. And I want to be a contributing member of the society that will act in such a way that does not bring harm to others. That they recognize what they did was wrong and why it was wrong. So that's that's the two-step thing that I would do. Um, there's a lot of intricacies that are in that, but for me to speak in any more detail would require uh, quite the burden level of, of time, resources, and research uh, that I just don't have because I'm not involved in the criminal justice community anymore. It's not my job anymore. That's. It's not what I do anymore. Um, that's not where my focus lies. My focus lies on trying to bring souls to Christ. Um, this world is not perfect, but it is through Christ, through the Christian community, that we can make it a little bit closer to that standard of perfection, one soul at a time. One soul at a time. Uh, good, good friend of mine, a uh, preacher friend of mine, missionary, uh, he had this saying, um, each one reach one. If every Christian was able to reach out and affect one other person's life in such a way that would bring them to Christ, it would have an exponential effect on Christian growth, on growth of the church, and on society in general, as you have more people being converted to Christ and living for Christian values. So, that brings this lesson to a close. I believe this is might be my longest episode, but there was a lot that I wanted to cover. I hope I wasn't too repetitive in the beginning. I repeated myself a lot, but it's because I really wanted to stress the importance of certain values that a lot of people might not understand. Um, thank you for listening. If you were able to make it this long, um, I hope that the things that I said were in line with scriptures, that I took nothing out of context. I hope that I was able to present it in a way that showed that I do love and care about you uh, and about all those affected uh, in our society, about all those members that are in our government um, at the highest level of politics to the lowest level of police officers. I truly care deeply about them at a personal level, but on a spiritual level as well. I want what's best for them, and what's best for them is to be obedient to Christ, to be with their Father in heaven one day. So that is my best swing at trying to maintain a Christian perspective um, on the secular issue of Jeffrey Epstein and his case and what it means to American culture. Thanks for, uh, thanks for listening, guys. God bless. Have a great day.